Part two of Chapter four of Totem and Taboo by Sigmund Freud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Infantile Recurrence of Totemism. Part two B and C. The Origin of Exogamy and Its Relation to Totemism. I have put forth the theories of totemism with considerable detail, and yet I am afraid that I have not made them clear enough on account of the condensation that was constantly necessary. In the interest of the reader, I am taking the liberty of further condensing the other questions that arise. The discussions about the exogamy of totem races become especially complicated and untractable, one might even say confused on account of the nature of the material used. Fortunately, the object of this treatise permits me to limit myself to pointing out several guideposts and referring to the frequently quoted writings of experts in the field for a more thorough pursuit of the subject. The attitude of an author to the problems of exogamy is of course not independent of the stand he has taken toward one or other of the totem theories. Some of these explanations of totemism lack all connection with exogamy, so that the two institutions are entirely separated. Thus we find here two opposing views, one of which clings to the original likelihood that exogamy is an essential part of the totemic system, while the other disputes such a connection and believes in an accidental combination of those two traits of the most ancient cultures. In his later work, Fraser has emphatically stood for this latter point of view. Quote, I must request the reader to bear constantly in mind that the two institutions of totemism and exogamy are fundamentally distinct in origin and nature, though they have accidentally crossed and blended in many tribes. End quote. Totemism and Exogamy 1, Preface 12 he warns directly against the opposite view as being a source of endless difficulties and misunderstandings. In contrast to this, many authors have found a way of conceiving exogamy as a necessary consequence of the basic views on totemism. Durkheim has shown in his writing how the taboo which is attached to the totem must have entailed the prohibition against putting a woman of the same totem to sexual uses. The totem is of the same blood as the human being, and for this reason the blood ban, in reference to defloration and menstruation, forbids sexual intercourse with a woman of the same totem. Andrew Lang, who here agrees with Durkheim, goes so far as to believe that the blood taboo was not necessary to bring about the prohibition in regard to the women of the same tribe. The general totem taboo, which, for instance, forbids anyone to sit in the shadow of the totem tree, would have sufficed. Andrew Lang also contends for another derivation of exogamy, see below, and leaves it in doubt how these two explanations are related to each other. As regards the temporal relations, the majority of authors subscribe to the opinion that totemism is the older institution and that exogamy came later. Among the theories which seek to explain exogamy independently of totemism, only a few need be mentioned in so far as they illustrate different attitudes of the authors toward the problem of incest. MacLennan had ingeniously guessed that exogamy resulted from the remnants of customs pointing to earlier forms of female rape. 
he assumed that it was the general custom in ancient times to procure women from strange tribes so that marriage with a woman from the same tribe gradually became improper because it was unusual he sought the motive for the exogamous habit in the scarcity of women among these tribes which had resulted from the custom of killing most female children at birth we are not concerned here with investigating whether actual conditions corroborate mclennan's assumptions we are more interested in the argument that these premises still leave it unexplained why the male members of the tribe should have made these few women of their blood inaccessible to themselves as well as in the manner in which the incest problem is here entirely neglected other writers have on the contrary assumed and evidently with more right that exogamy is to be interpreted as an institution for the prevention of incest if we survey the gradually increasing complication of australian marriage restrictions we can hardly help agreeing with the opinion of morgan fraser hewitt and baldwin spencer that these institutions bear the stamp of deliberate design as fraser puts it and that they are meant to do what they have actually accomplished Quote, in no other way does it seem possible to explain in all its details a system at once so complex and so regular it is of interest to point out that the first restrictions which the introduction of marriage classes brought about affected the sexual freedom of the young generation in other words incest between brothers and sisters and between sons and mothers while incest between father and daughter was only abrogated by more sweeping measures however to trace back exogamous sexual restrictions to legal intentions does not add anything to the understanding of the motive which created these institutions from what source in the final analysis springs the dread of incest which must be recognized as the root of exogamy it evidently does not suffice to appeal to an instinctive aversion against sexual intercourse with blood relatives that is to say to the fact of incest dread in order to explain the dread of incest if social experience shows that in spite of this instinct incest is not a rare occurrence even in our society and if the experience of history can acquaint us with cases in which incestuous marriage of privileged persons was made the rule Westermark advanced the following to explain the dread of incest, quote, that an innate aversion against sexual intercourse exists between persons who live together from childhood, and that this feeling, since such persons are as a rule consanguineous, finds a natural expression in custom and law through the abhorrence of sexual intercourse between those closely related, end quote though havelock ellis disputed the instinctive character of this aversion in his studies in the psychology of sex he otherwise supported the same explanation in its essentials by declaring quote, the normal absence of the manifestation of the pairing instinct where brothers and sisters or boys and girls living together from childhood are concerned is a purely negative phenomenon due to the fact that under these circumstances the antecedent conditions for arousing the mating instinct must be entirely lacking for persons who have grown up together from childhood habit has dulled the sensual attraction of seeing hearing and touching and has led it into a channel of quiet attachment 
robbing it of its power to call forth the necessary erethistic excitement required to produce sexual tumescence. End quote. It seems to me very remarkable that Westermark looks upon this innate aversion to sexual intercourse with persons with whom we have shared childhood as being at the same time a psychic representative of the biological fact that inbreeding means injury to the species. Such a biological instinct would hardly go so far astray in its psychological manifestation as to affect the companions of home and hearth, which in this respect are quite harmless instead of the blood relatives which alone are injurious to procreation and i cannot resist citing the excellent criticism which fraser opposes to westermark's assertion fraser finds it incomprehensible that sexual sensibility to-day is not at all opposed to sexual intercourse with companions of the hearth and home while the dread of incest which is said to be nothing but an offshoot of this reluctance has nowadays grown to be so overpowering but other remarks of Fraser's go deeper, and I set them down here in unabbreviated form because they are in essential agreement with the arguments developed in my chapter 2 on taboo. Quote, it is not easy to see why any deep human instinct should need reinforcement through law. There is no law commanding men to eat and drink or forbidding them to put their hands in the fire men eat and drink and keep their hands out of the fire instinctively for fear of natural not legal penalties which would be entailed by violence done to these instincts the law only forbids men to do what their instincts incline them to do what nature itself prohibits and punishes it would be superfluous for the law to prohibit and punish accordingly we may always safely assume that crimes forbidden by law are crimes which many men have a natural propensity to commit if there were no such propensity there would be no such crimes and if no such crimes were committed what need to forbid them instead of assuming therefore from the legal prohibition of incest that there is a natural aversion to incest we ought rather to assume that there is a natural instinct in favor of it and if the law represses it it does so because civilized men have come to the conclusion that the satisfaction of these natural instincts is detrimental to the general interests of society to this valuable argument of fraser's i can add that the experiences of psychoanalysis make the assumption of such an innate aversion to incestuous relations altogether impossible they have taught on the contrary that the first sexual impulses of the young are regularly of an incestuous nature and that such repressed impulses play a role which can hardly be overestimated as the motive power of later neuroses the interpretation of incest dread as an innate instinct must therefore be abandoned the same holds true of another derivation of the incest prohibition which counts many supporters namely the assumption that primitive races very soon observed the dangers with which inbreeding threatened their race and that they therefore had decreed the incest prohibition with a conscious purpose the objections to this attempted explanation crowd upon each other not only must the prohibition of incest 
be older than all breeding of domestic animals from which men could derive experience of the effect of inbreeding upon the characteristics of the breed but the harmful consequences of inbreeding are not established beyond all doubt even today and in man they can be shown only with difficulty besides everything that we know about contemporaneous savages makes it very improbable that the thoughts of their far removed ancestors should already have been occupied with preventing injury to their later descendants it sounds almost ridiculous to attribute hygienic and eugenic motives such as have hardly yet found consideration in our culture to these children of the race who lived without thought of the morrow and finally it must be pointed out that a prohibition against inbreeding as an element weakening to the race which is imposed from practical hygienic motives seems quite inadequate to explain the deep abhorrence which our society feels against incest this dread of incest as i have shown elsewhere seems to be even more active and stronger among primitive races living to-day than among the civilized in inquiring into the origin of incest dread it could be expected that here also there is the choice between possible explanations of a sociological biological and psychological nature in which the psychological motives might have to be considered as representative of biological forces still in the end one is compelled to subscribe to fraser's resigned statement namely that we do not know the origin of incest dread and do not even know how to guess at it none of the solutions of the riddle thus far advanced seem satisfactory to us i must mention another attempt to explain the origin of incest dread which is of an entirely different nature from those considered up to now it might be called a historic explanation this attempt is associated with the hypothesis of charles darwin about the primal social state of man from the habits of the higher apes darwin concluded that man too lived originally in small hordes in which the jealousy of the oldest and strongest male prevented sexual promiscuity Quote, we may indeed conclude from what we know of the jealousy of all male quadrupeds armed as many of them are with special weapons for battling with their rivals that promiscuous intercourse in a state of nature is extremely improbable if we therefore look back far enough into the stream of time and judging from the social habits of man as he now exists the most probable view is that he originally lived in small communities each with a single wife or if powerful with several whom he jealously defended against all other men or he may not have been a social animal and yet have lived with several wives like the gorilla for all the natives quote, agree that only the adult male is seen in a band when the young male grows up a contest takes place for mastery and the strongest by killing and driving out the others establishes himself as the head of the community dr savage in the boston journal of natural history volume five eighteen forty five to forty seven the younger males being thus driven out and wandering about would also when at last successful in finding a partner prevent too close inbreeding within the limits of the same family End quote. 
Atkinson seems to have been the first to recognize that these conditions of the Darwinian primal horde would in practice bring about the exogamy of the young men. Each one of those driven away could found a similar horde in which, thanks to jealousy of the chief, the same prohibition as to sexual intercourse obtained, and in the course of time these conditions would have brought about the rule which is now known as law, no sexual intercourse with the members of the horde. After the advent of totemism, the rule would have changed into a different form, no sexual intercourse within the totem. Andrew Lang declared himself in agreement with this explanation of exogamy, but in the same book he advocates the other theory of Durkheim, which explains exogamy as a consequence of the totem laws. It is not altogether easy to combine the two interpretations. In the first case, exogamy would have existed before totemism. In the second case, it would be a consequence of it. Section 3. Into this darkness, psychoanalytic experience throws one single ray of light. The relation of the child to animals has much in common with that of primitive man. The child does not yet show any trace of the pride which afterwards moves the adult, civilized man to set a sharp dividing line between his own nature and that of all other animals. The child unhesitatingly attributes full equality to animals. He probably feels himself more closely related to the animal than to the undoubtedly mysterious adult, in the freedom with which he acknowledges his needs. Not infrequently a curious disturbance manifests itself in this excellent understanding between child and animal. The child suddenly begins to fear a certain animal species and to protect himself against seeing or touching any individual of this species. There results the clinical picture of an animal phobia, which is one of the most frequent among the psychoneurotic diseases of this age, and perhaps the earliest form of such an ailment. The phobia is as a rule in regard to animals for which the child has until then shown the liveliest interest and has nothing to do with the individual animal. In cities, the choice of animals which can become the object of phobia is not great. They are horses, dogs, cats, more seldom birds, and strikingly often very small animals, like bugs and butterflies. Sometimes animals, which are known to the child only from picture books and fairy stories, become objects of the senseless and inordinate anxiety which is manifested with these phobias. It is seldom possible to learn the manner in which such an unusual choice of anxiety has been brought about. I am indebted to Dr. Carl Abraham for the report of a case in which the child itself explained its fear of wasps by saying that the color and the stripes of the body of the wasp had made it think of the tiger, of which from all that it had heard it might well be afraid. The animal phobias have not yet been made the object of careful analytical investigation, although they very much merit it. The difficulties of analyzing children of so tender an age have probably been the motive of such neglect. It cannot therefore be asserted that the general meaning of these illnesses is known, and I myself do not think that it would turn out to be the same in all cases. But a number of such phobias directed against larger animals have proved accessible to analysis and have thus betrayed their secret to the investigator. 
in every case it was the same the fear at bottom was of the father if the children examined were boys and was merely displaced upon the animal every one of any experience in psychoanalysis has undoubtedly seen such cases and has received the same impression from them but i can refer to only a few detailed reports on the subject this is an accident of the literature of such cases from which the conclusion should not be drawn that our general assertion is based on merely scattered observation for instance i mention an author m wolf of odessa who has very intelligently occupied himself with the neuroses of childhood he tells in relating the history of an illness that a nine-year-old boy suffered from a dog phobia at the age of four Quote, when he saw a dog running by on the street he wept and cried dear dog don't touch me i will be good End quote. by being good he meant not to play violin any more to practice onanism the same author later sums up as follows quote, his dog phobia is really his fear of the father displaced upon the dog for his peculiar expression dog i will be good that is to say i will not masturbate really refers to the father who has forbidden masturbation End quote. he then adds something in a note which fully agrees with my experience and at the same time bears witness to the abundance of such experiences quote, such phobias of horses dogs cats chickens and other domestic animals are i think at least as prevalent as pavor nocturnus in childhood and usually revealed themselves in the analysis as a displacement of fear from one of the parents to animals i am not prepared to assert that the widespread mouse and rat phobia has the same mechanism i reported the analysis of the phobia of a five-year-old boy which the father of the little patient had put at my disposal it was a fear of horses as a result of which the boy refused to go in the street he expressed his apprehension that the horse would come into the room and bite him it proved that this was meant to be the punishment for his wish that the horse should fall over die after assurances that relieved the boy of his fear of his father it proved that he was fighting against wishes whose content was the absence departure or death of the father he indicated only too plainly that he felt the father to be his rival for the favor of the mother upon whom his budding sexual wishes were by dark premonitions directed he therefore had the typical attitude of the male child to its parents which we call the oedipus complex in which we recognize the central complex of the neuroses in general through the analysis of little john we have learnt a fact which is very valuable in relation to totemism namely that under such conditions the child displaces a part of its feelings from the father upon some animal analysis showed the paths of association both significant and accidental in content along which such a displacement took place it also allowed one to guess the motives for the displacement the hate which resulted from the rivalry for the mother could not permeate the boy's psychic life without being inhibited he had to contend with the tenderness and admiration which he had felt for his father from the beginning so that the child assumed a double or ambivalent emotional attitude towards the father and relieved himself of this ambivalent conflict by displacing his hostile and anxious feelings upon a substitute for the father 
The displacement could not, however, relieve the conflict by bringing about a smooth division between the tender and the hostile feelings. On the contrary, the conflict was continued in reference to the object to which displacement has been made and to which also the ambivalence spreads. There was no doubt that little John had not only fear but respect and interest for horses. As soon as his fear was moderated, he identified himself with the feared animal. He jumped around like a horse, and now it was he who bit the father. In another stage of solution of the phobia, he did not scruple to identify his parents with other large animals. We may venture the impression that certain traits of totemism return as a negative expression in these animal phobias of children, but we are indebted to S. Ferenczi for a beautiful individual observation of what must be called a case of positive totemism in the child. It is true that with the little Arpad, whom Ferenczi reports, the totemic interests do not awaken in direct connection with the Oedipus complex, but on the basis of an narcissistic premise, namely the fear of castration. But whoever looks attentively through the history of little John will also find there abundant proof that the father was admired as the possessor of large genitals and was feared as threatening the child's own genitals. In the Oedipus, as well as in the castration complex, the father plays the same role of feared opponent to the infantile sexual interests. Castration and its substitute through blinding is the punishment he threatens. When little Arpad was two and a half years old, he once tried, while at a summer resort, to urinate into the chicken coop, and on this occasion a chicken bit his penis or snapped at it. When he returned to the same place a year later, he became a chicken himself, was interested only in the chicken coop and in everything that occurred there, and gave up human speech for cackling and crowing. During the period of observation, at the age of five, he spoke again, but his speech was exclusively about chickens and other fowl. He played with no other toy and sang only songs in which there was something about poultry. His behavior towards his totem animal was subtly ambivalent, expressing itself in immoderate hating and loving. He loved best to play killing chickens. Quote, the slaughtering of poultry was quite a festival for him. He could dance around the animal's body for hours at a time in a state of intense excitement. End quote. But then he kissed and stroked the slaughtered animal and cleaned and caressed the chicken effigies which he himself had ill-used. Arpad himself saw to it that the meaning of his curious activity could not remain hidden. At times he translated his wishes from the totemic method of expression back into that of everyday life. Quote, now I am small, now I am a chicken. When I get bigger, I will be a fowl. When I am bigger still, I will be a cock. End quote. On another occasion, he suddenly expressed the wish to eat a potted mother, by analogy, potted fowl. He was very free with open threats of castration against others, just as he himself had received them on account of onanistic preoccupation with his penis. According to Ferenczi, there was no doubt as to the source of his interest in the activities of the chicken yard. 
quote, the continual sexual activity between cock and hen, the laying of eggs and the creeping out of the young brood, end quote, satisfied his sexual curiosity, which really was directed towards human family life. His object wishes have been formed on the model of chicken life when we find him saying to a woman neighbor, quote, I am going to marry you and your sister and my three cousins and the cook. No, instead of the cook, I'll marry my mother. End quote. We shall be able to complete our consideration of these observations later. At present, we will only point out two traits that show a valuable correspondence with totemism the complete identification with the totem animal and the ambivalent affective attitude towards it. In view of these observations, we consider ourselves justified in substituting the father for the totem animal in the male's formula of totemism. We then notice that in doing so, we have taken no new or especially daring step. For primitive men say it themselves, and as far as the totemic system is still in effect today, the totem is called ancestor and primal father. We have only taken literally an expression of these races, which ethnologists did not know what to do with, and were therefore inclined to put it into the background. Psychoanalysis warns us, on the contrary, to emphasize this very point, and to connect it with the attempt to explain totemism. The first result of our substitution is very remarkable. If the totem animal is the father, then the two main commandments of totemism, the two taboo rules which constitute its nucleus, not to kill the totem animal and not to use a woman belonging to the same totem for sexual purposes, agree in content with the two crimes of Oedipus, who slew his father and took his mother to wife, and also with the child's two primal wishes, whose insufficient repression, or whose reawakening, forms the nucleus of perhaps all neuroses. If this similarity is more than a deceptive play of accident, it would perforce make it possible for us to shed light upon the origin of totemism in prehistoric times. In other words, we should succeed in making it probable that the totemic system resulted from the conditions underlying the Oedipus complex, just as the animal phobia of little John and the poultry perversion of little Arpad resulted from it. In order to trace this possibility, we shall, in what follows, study a peculiarity of the totemic system, or as we may say, of the totemic religion, which until now could hardly be brought into the discussion. Section 4. W. Robertson Smith, who died in 1894, was a physicist, philologist, Bible critic, and archaeologist, and many-sided as well as keen and free-thinking man, expressed the assumption in his work on the religion of the Semites, published in 1889, that a peculiar ceremony, the so-called totem feast, had from the very beginning formed an integral part of the totemic system. For the support of this supposition, he had at his disposal at that time only a single description of such an act from the year 500 A.D. He knew, however, how to give a high degree of probability to his assumption through his analysis of the nature of sacrifice among the old Semites. As sacrifice assumes a godlike person, we are dealing here with an inference from a higher phase of religious rite to its lowest phase in totemism. I shall now cite from Robertson Smith's excellent book, 
those statements about the origin and meaning of the sacrificial rite which are of great interest to us i shall omit the only too numerous tempting details as well as the parts dealing with all later developments in such an excerpt it is quite impossible to give the reader any sense of the lucidity or of the argumentative force of the original robertson smith shows that sacrifice at the altar was the essential part of the rite of old religions it plays the same role in all religions so that its origin must be traced back to very general causes whose effects were everywhere the same but the sacrifice the holy action catexocane sacrificium hierurgia originally meant something different from what later times understood by it the offering to the deity in order to reconcile him or to incline him to be favorable the profane use of the word was afterwards derived from the secondary sense of self-denial as is demonstrated the first sacrifice was nothing else than quote, an act of social fellowship between the deity and his worshippers things to eat and drink were brought as sacrifice man offered to his god the same things on which he himself lived flesh cereals fruits wine and oil only in regard to the sacrificial flesh did there exist restrictions and exceptions the god partakes of the animal sacrifices with his worshippers while the vegetable sacrifices are left to him alone there is no doubt that animal sacrifices are older and at one time were the only forms of sacrifice the vegetable sacrifices resulted from the offering of the first fruits and corresponded to a tribute to the lord of the soil and the land but animal sacrifice is older than agriculture linguistic survivals make it certain that the part of the sacrifice destined for the god was looked upon as his real food this conception became offensive with the progressive dematerialization of the deity and was avoided by offering the deity only the liquid part of the meal later the use of fire which made the sacrificial flesh ascend in smoke from the altar made it possible to prepare human food in such a way that it was more suitable for the deity the drink sacrifice was originally the blood of the sacrificed animals wine was used later as a substitute for the blood primitive man looked upon wine as the blood of the grape as our poets still call it the oldest form of sacrifice older than the use of fire and the knowledge of agriculture was therefore the sacrifice of animals whose flesh and blood the god and his worshippers ate together it was essential that both participants should receive their share of the meal such a sacrifice was a public ceremony the celebration of a whole clan as a matter of fact all religion was a public affair religious duty was a part of the social obligation sacrifice and festival go together among all races each sacrifice entails a holiday and no holiday can be celebrated without a sacrifice the sacrificial festival was an occasion for joyously transcending one's own interests and emphasizing social community and community with god the ethical power of the public sacrificial feast was based upon primal conceptions of the meaning of eating and drinking in common to eat and drink with someone was at the same time a symbol and a confirmation of social community and of the assumption of mutual obligations the sacrificial eating gave direct expression to the fact that the god and his worshippers are communicants thus confirming all their other relations 
Customs that today still are in force among the Arabs of the desert prove that the binding force resulting from the common meal is not a religious factor, but that the subsequent mutual obligations are due to the act of eating itself. Whoever has shared the smallest bite with such a Bedouin, or has taken a swallow of his milk, need not fear him any longer as an enemy, but may be sure of his protection and help not indeed forever strictly speaking this lasts only while it may be assumed that the food partaken remains in the body so realistically is the bond of union conceived it requires repetition to strengthen it and make it endure but why is this binding power ascribed to eating and drinking in common in the most primitive societies there is only one unconditional and never-failing bond that of kinship the members of a community stand by each other jointly and severally. A kin is a group of persons whose life is so bound into a physical unity that they can be considered as parts of a common life. In case of the murder of one of this kin, they therefore do not say, the blood of so-and-so has been spilt, but our blood has been spilt. The Hebraic phrase by which the tribal relation is acknowledged is, thou art my bone and my flesh kinship therefore signifies having part in a general substance it is natural then that it is based not only upon the fact that we are a part of the substance of our mother who has borne us and whose milk nourished us but also that the food eaten later through which the body is renewed can acquire and strengthen kinship if one shared a meal with one's god the conviction was thus expressed that one was the same substance as he no meal was therefore partaken with any one recognized as a stranger. The sacrificial repast was therefore originally a feast of the kin, following the rule that only those of kin could eat together. In our society, the meal unites the members of the family, but the sacrificial repast has nothing to do with the family. Kinship is older than family life. The oldest families known to us regularly comprised persons who belonged to various bonds of kinship. The men married women of strange clans, and the children inherited the clan of the mother. There was no kinship between the man and the rest of the members of the family. In such a family there was no common meal. Even today savages eat apart and alone, and the religious prohibitions of totemism as to eating often make it impossible for them to eat with their wives and children. Let us now turn to the sacrificial animal. There was, as we have heard, no meeting of the kin without animal sacrifice, but, and this is significant, no animal was slaughtered except for such a solemn occasion. Without any hesitation, the people ate fruits, game, and the milk of domestic animals, but religious scruples made it impossible for the individual to kill a domestic animal for his own use. There is not the least doubt, says Robertson Smith, that every sacrifice was originally a clan sacrifice, and that the killing of the sacrificial animal originally belonged to those acts which were forbidden to the individual, and were only justified if the whole kin assumed the responsibility. Primitive men had only one class of actions which were thus characterized, namely, actions which touched the holiness of the kin's common blood. A life which no individual might take, 
and which could be sacrificed only through the consent and participation of all the members of the clan was on the same plane as the life of a member of the kin the rule that every guest of the sacrificial repast must partake of the flesh of the sacrificial animal had the same meaning as the rule that the execution of a guilty member of the kin must be performed by the whole kin in other words the sacrificial animal was treated like one of kin the sacrificing community its god and the sacrificial animal were of the same blood and the members of a clan on the basis of much evidence robertson smith identifies the sacrificial animal with the old totem animal in a later age there were two kinds of sacrifices those of domestic animals which usually were also eaten and the unusual sacrifice of animals which were forbidden as being unclean further investigation then shows that these unclean animals were holy and that they were sacrificed to the gods to whom they were holy that these animals were originally identified with the gods themselves and that at the sacrifice the worshippers in some way emphasized their blood relationship to the god and to the animal but this difference between usual and mystic sacrifices does not hold good for still earlier times originally all animals were holy their meat was forbidden and might be eaten only on solemn occasions with the participation of the whole kin the slaughter of the animal amounted to the spilling of the kin's blood and had to be done with the same precautions and assurances against reproach the taming of domestic animals and the rise of cattle breeding seems everywhere to have put an end to the pure and rigorous totemism of earlier times but such holiness as still clung to domestic animals in what was now a pastoral religion is sufficiently distinct for us to recognize its totemic character even in late classical times the rite in several localities prescribed flight for the sacrificer after the sacrifice as if to escape revenge in greece the idea must once have been general that the killing of an ox was really a crime at the athenian festival of the bophonia a formal trial to which all the participants were summoned was instituted after the sacrifice finally it was agreed to put the blame for the murder upon the knife which was then cast into the sea in spite of the dread which protects the life of the animal as being of kin it became necessary to kill it from time to time in solemn conclave and to divide its flesh and blood among the members of the clan the motive which commands this act reveals the deepest meaning of the essence of sacrifice we have heard that in later times every eating in common the participation in the same substance which entered into their bodies established a holy bond between the communicants in oldest times this meaning seemed to be attached only to participation in the substance of a holy sacrifice the holy mystery of the sacrificial death was justified in that only in this way could the holy bond be established which united the participants with each other and with their god this bond was nothing else than the life of the sacrificial animal which lived on its flesh and blood and was shared by all the participants by means of the sacrificial feast such an idea was the basis of all the blood bonds through which men in still later times became pledged to each other 
the thoroughly realistic conception of consanguinity as an identity of substance makes comprehensible the necessity of renewing it from time to time through the physical process of the sacrificial repast we will now stop quoting from robertson smith's train of thought in order to give a condensed summary of what is essential in it when the idea of private property came into existence sacrifice was conceived as a gift to the deity as a transfer from the property of man to that of the god but this interpretation left all the peculiarities of the sacrificial ritual unexplained in oldest times the sacrificial animal itself had been holy and its life inviolate it could be taken only in the presence of the god with the whole tribe taking part and sharing the guilt in order to furnish the holy substance through the eating of which the members of the clan assured themselves of their material identity with each other and with the deity the sacrifice was a sacrament and the sacrificial animal itself was one of the kin in reality it was the old totem animal the primitive god himself through the slaying and eating of whom the members of the clan revived and assured their similarity with the god from this analysis of the nature of sacrifice robertson smith drew the conclusion that the periodic killing and eating of the totem before the period when the anthropomorphic deities were venerated was an important part of totem religion the ceremonial of such a totem feast was preserved for us he thought in the description of a sacrifice in later times st nilus tells of a sacrificial custom of the bedouins in the desert of sinai towards the end of the fourth century a d the victim a camel was bound and laid upon a rough altar of stones the leader of the tribe made the participants walk three times around the altar to the accompaniment of song inflicted the first wound upon the animal and greedily drank the spurting blood then the whole community threw itself upon the sacrifice cut off pieces of the palpitating flesh with their swords and ate them raw in such haste that in a short interval between the rise of the morning star for whom this sacrifice was meant and its fading before the rays of the sun the whole sacrificial animal flesh skin bones and entrails were devoured according to every testimony this barbarous rite which speaks of great antiquity was not a rare custom but the general original form of the totem sacrifice which in later times underwent the most varied modifications many authors have refused to grant any weight to this conception of the totem feast because it could not be strengthened by direct observation at the stage of totemism robertson smith himself has referred to examples in which the sacramental meaning of sacrifices seems certain such as the human sacrifices of the aztecs and others which recall the conditions of the totem feast the bear sacrifices of the bear tribe of the Owatuaks in america and the bear festival of the ainus in japan fraser has given a full account of these and similar cases in the two divisions of his great work that have last appeared an indian tribe in california which reveres the buzzard a large bird of prey kills it once a year with solemn ceremony whereupon the bird is mourned and its skin and feathers preserved the zuni indians in new mexico do the same thing with their holy turtle 
in the intichiuma ceremonies of central australian tribes a trait has been observed which fits it excellently with the assumptions of robertson smith every tribe that practices magic for the increase of its totem which it cannot eat itself is bound to eat a part of its totem at the ceremony before it can be touched by the other tribes according to fraser the best example of the sacramental conception of the otherwise forbidden totem is to be found among the bini in west africa in connection with the burial ceremony of this tribe but we also follow robertson smith in the assumption that the sacramental killing and the common consumption of the otherwise forbidden totem animal was an important trait of the totem religion end of part two of chapter four read by Mary Schneider.